Welcome to the East Oregonians podcast in the newsroom. Joining me is Washington State University history professor Bridget Farley. Bridget normally teaches on WSU's Tri-Cities campus, but lately because of the pandemic and social distancing, she teaches from her Pendleton home via, via technology for the ongoing future. So today, Bridget and I are going back 102 years to the flu pandemic of 1918. And both of us have written about the flu pandemic, the so-called Spanish influenza. And um, I wrote a story back in 2015 on the subject. We were having a especially bad flu year that year. And Bridget has written columns on World War I and, and uh, written about the flu within, within that scope. Um, and then just lately, unbeknownst to both of us, we're friends, but we just, and we talk about the subject sometimes, but unbeknownst to each of us, each of us was writing um, on the subject again. And I wrote about it in kind of a hyper-local way and just looking at what, what Pendleton did when the flu came upon it and what strategy they used and what that looked like. And Bridget wrote about it that too, but also from a more of a worldwide perspective. And so today we're gonna to be going back into the subject and uh, I get the easy part, just asking her questions. And uh, I think Bridget, that I'd like to start out by um, kind of asking you how the flu kind of got going in 1918. What were kind of some of the theories about how it got started and how did it spread? Like we, we're used to, we can travel by air to anywhere in the world. And obviously that meant, you know, that's how COVID gets around too. Right. But um, in those days, how did it happen? Well, there are a lot of theories about the flu um, and, and the experts still haven't agreed on how it started or where. The first theory or one that's been sort of widely propagated is that it started in uh, Camp Funston in Kansas in March of 1918 mm -hmm. because there was a tremendous uh, burning of manure of various sorts on this army base and a tremendous black cloud of dust and stuff arising and it was breathed in by the troops that were working on it. And then the next day, there was this uh, influx of people in the infirmary um, complaining of respiratory illness. And before they knew it, about 500 guys had, had come to the hospital. And um, I think three died, most recovered, but it was a strange little outbreak of something that they didn't know. And kind of went away, no problem. Um, and then in the summer, when and this is all against the backdrop of World War I, we had troops going over every month um, to sort of shore up the flagging efforts of the French and the British who were exhausted after four years of war. Um, it was thought that our troops, an influx of our troops, could win the war. And so they're going over uh, to France, going over, going over, going over. And all of a sudden, um, there was an outbreak in France of somewhat the same illness among our troops, also French troops and British troops and German troops, respiratory illness, although this time it had come back with a really virulent strain of it, a virulent form of it. It was uh, attacking very young, uh, young people, soldiers, and wasting them within a day. I mean, you would, they would come into the infirmary, they would have a cough and a fever, and all of a sudden their uh, ears and extremities would turn blue and they would drown in their own fluid. Oh it was a goodness. scary, scary new um, sort of mutation of this virus. 
And then it came back to America because troops were coming back and forth all the time on crowded troop ships to America. And uh, the big outbreak in America is traced to September 1918 when um, a naval vessel docked uh, off the Massachusetts coast and some sailors came aboard or came, came ashore. And um, from there, there was a tremendous outbreak of, of flu in, at Camp Devens, which is outside of Boston. A tremendous number of cases there, 100 cases the first day, 200 cases the second day. Pretty soon, um, the hospital at that base or that camp and the morgue were overflowing with people. And from there, I mean, there were, there were all kinds of soldiers coming and going from Camp Devens, and it spread from there to New York, to Philadelphia, and then uh, out into the hinterlands. Um, so that was really the place where it started. And um, again, it's a, it's a perfect storm. It's a war. It's uh, keeping factories open. It's liberty loan drives. It's people having to be out in the streets um, collecting money for the war, for the war effort. Um, and the, the flu spread tremendously from there, all through, really all through the country. And there's an American experience that people ought to be aware of. It was done in 2007, I think. And, this man was talking about being a boy, living an idyllic existence in uh, Lincoln, Illinois, and having this flu come into their lives and uh, kill his mother and uh, his mother's unborn child within a day. And he said at that point he felt that um, he, knew, he knew that we were no longer safe, that bad things can happen no matter what you do. So that's kind of a, kind of a um, in a nutshell, how it happened, how it came. Um, there are other theories as to whether, as to how it originated. Some people allege, and there's evidence for this, that it began in a British military camp in, uh, in France. There was also an outbreak in 1916 of a strange illness. Um, we don't know, uh, but we do know that pe people got sick with a bad respiratory infection in both, in both uh, instances. And then there was also a theory that it came from China. I read that um, most influenza cases can be traced to China in, to some degree since, since 1888, since they've been keeping track of this. And Chinese laborers did come from Guangdong province to the Western Front to dig graves and dig trenches for the British Empire. So we don't know exactly how it started, but we do know it was really, really, really lethal, and it spread like wildfire. Wow. That's terrifying. Um, and really super fascinating. Is there any reason why that it was nicknamed the Spanish flu? I believe it was uh, nicknamed that because in, in Spain they were actually covering the outbreak of this flu and they were, they were keeping track of the casualties. And they weren't really doing that in Britain or France or the United States because the operative word in all those places was denial. We needed to keep the factories going. We have to keep the troops coming back and forth. We can't stop this war effort now. Mm -hmm. It was thought that uh, the United States had to end this war in the fourth year of the war, or everybody would collapse of sheer exhaustion because this war had been so awful and so terrifyingly exacting of all the combatants. Only the United States coming in the fourth year could, could uh, assist the situation, could prevent complete collapse so there was every uh, incentive not to talk about it, basically. Wow. So tell us about how the, the virus actually came to Eastern Oregon. Can, you can it be tracked down to a specific person and time? We did. In, in, in other words, we know from the East Oregonian that um, you know, troops were coming through here all the time on the train. And there was a sick Marine, apparently, brought here on, I believe, October 9th or 10th, 1918. 
and that Maureen was brought off the train very ill and taken immediately to St. Anthony Hospital. And when that happened, um, immediately the town fathers knew what they were dealing with because you'd seen the situation in New York and Philadelphia where you had hundreds of deaths each day. They were already reporting on that, so they knew what they were dealing with when they saw it, and they, they immediately took steps to shut the town down, basically. Remember, that there's a great big, if you, you go in the East Oregon and you see the big books, you see the big headline, um, Pendleton is, town is closed, influenza comes, town is closed. They really did shut down the town. Um, the, the mayor, as we know, Mayor Vaughn, uh, immediately announced a, a closure of all uh, schools and a ban on public gatherings, and there were immediately thoughts that we had to have something else besides St. Anthony Hospital, which was very, very uh, tiny at the time, relatively small. I don't know how many beds, but not very many. So um, immediately a committee of um, Pendleton women, of whom one was Mrs. Roy Rayleigh, was a very um, <laughs> high, high social caliber of people doing this. They decided there would be an emergency hospital established in the city hall, and there would be room for 25 beds there. Um, again, anticipating an overflow. And there was also a woman um, her, by the name of uh, N.D. Parks, Mrs. N.D. Parks. I forget where she lived. The street names are all different in 1918. But she also made it known that she would take in five women if they could spare some nurses from St. Anthony Hospital to help her out with the actual care. And I believe uh, the financing would come from, in other words, the, the electricity and all that would be paid by the city. The Red Cross would pay for some of it, and they would uh, take advantage of roundup uh, time cots to put in the city hall to um, help this help establish this uh, emergency hospital. And right away, there were like 25 cases uh, in the emergency hospital, which meant the St. Anthony's was already oversubscribed, and they were taking in at least one flu person per day. Wow. I remember um, reading early on that some of the businesses tried to stay open. Um, uh, movie theaters, for instance, uh, people sat every other seat, and, and then there was a blank row in front of them, and then people every other seat. And then the library, uh, you could go in, you could get a book, check it out, but then you had to leave. You couldn't linger and read it. So there were, so there were some early attempts, and um, as well as some of the stores only allowed a certain number of people in at a time. Right. I think there were... There were bans on public meetings and things like that. Mm -hmm. I, think th I think there were attempts to keep some of the restaurants. I know people were going to restaurants. I think there were numerical restrictions on those. I know that they that initially they shut down the bowling alleys and the movie theaters, but um, under, under protest from some of those business owners, I believe they did later on um, kind of modify to make sure that, that, not, that only certain people, a certain number of people were allowed in. They didn't want to completely uh, decimate all and all the businesses, but there was a serious uh, attempt early on to ban all public meetings and, and gatherings of all sorts. And um, I know on New Year's in 1918, there was a very strict article in the paper with a lot of warnings about uh, New Year's revelers. If we catch you in a group, if we catch you having a party, if we hear loud noises coming from your house, the quarantine officer, and we did here in Pendleton have a quarantine officer, that officer would come and arrest not only the house owner, but everybody in the house, and they would all be hauled into court and asked to account for their actions and probably fined and or jailed. If you couldn't pay the fine, they would throw you into jail. And the fine, I think, um, in today's money, um, ranged from $400 to $1,000, 
So you know, it was a pretty, pretty stiff fine okay. if you were wow. caught um, sort of not observing the uh, social distancing rules. And there was, there was a famous case of um, the, the reverend at the Church of the Redeemer, I think, his name was Alfred Lockwood. He also was cited, he actually, he wasn't fined, but he was shamed in the paper. The editor of the paper, E.B. Aldrich, was not um, shy about using the paper to shame people, so they put him on the front page of the paper as being a social distancing <laughs> scofflaw, and he was he protested basically that there weren't that many people here. Uh, man does not live by bread alone. We need some spiritual uh, welfare. We need some spiritual um, you know, sustenance, and we weren't doing anything that was endangering anybody. But they were seriously considering even finding him for a while. So they were they were pretty serious about it. All right. Well, so how long did this social distancing last, Bridget? Um, I, I, it seems like there were two waves of this. Yeah, there were two blue. waves. There were uh, the initial one, uh, starting with the Marine, brought off the train. That was October 11th through about November 15th or so. There were a growing number of cases at first, I think 20 cases and 40 cases. And you know, the hospital was full, the emergency hospital was full, and there were people being cared for at home, which, by the way, if we, if we forget to mention it, um, if you were caring for somebody at home with the flu, you had to fly a flag. Not only was, was your, uh, your relative with the flu, their name and address uh, posted, you had to post a blue flag outside your home, indicating that you were under quarantine. And if you didn't post the blue flag or hang the blue flag, then they, they would fine you or they, they had the right to fine you. So there was, there was hospital quarantine, there was uh, home quarantine. Um, but this first wave lasted till about November 15th. They began to see a drop in cases, a pretty steep drop in cases. So I believe on November um, 22nd or so, 15th through the 22nd, there was talk of lifting the ban, uh, you know, the serious ban. They were going to open the schools again. They've been closed the first month. They were going to open the schools. They were going to loosen some of the restrictions on businesses. They were not, however, going to lift the ban on public meetings for a while, but they were, they were going to do a partial lifting of this really strict uh, social distancing regime. But that only lasted a little, little while because I believe on um, December 6th, uh, you began to see all of a sudden an outbreak in Adams. There were 20 cases at first, and then the next day or the day after, 40 cases. And then the virus began to boomerang back to Pendleton because there were people going back and forth, you know, between the two towns, and it spread. All of a sudden, on um, December 19th, the decision was taken again to close the school, schools. Um, and then on December 21st, everybody was shut down again. And I believe they did put the put businesses under a total ban again because the the, the cases were really skyrocketing. 20 cases, 40 cases, 60 cases, up to 100 cases, and the list of people, list of addresses being cared for at home uh, grew and grew and grew. So there was kind of a, a real spike, and again, the city authorities reacted properly. They said, we've got we to reimpose this ban. Obviously, it didn't do the trick the first time, and we need to be really serious about it. The other thing that they did that was interesting uh, was to organize a community kitchen, and this was under the uh, direction of somebody, of a, of a woman named Mrs. C.H. Marsh. I believe there were Marshes later on in this town. I don't know if they were actually related to them. But they um, recruited a group of women to work at least two a day for about 10 days, I think, uh, uh, cooking soups and making custards and bread and then delivering them to people who 
all around the city who were burdened with, with caring for relatives, or in, the case of some, in some cases, if the entire house was down with flu, they would come in there with food for them. And uh, that was a great service. Um, E.B. Aldrich in the paper uh, saluted them, saying, you know, nobody has made a bigger difference in this flu epidemic than the good women who organized the community kitchen. I think uh, in the really critical period, which was December 19th through about the, the beginning of the new year, mm -hmm. uh, they served like 600 meals Gosh. in Pendleton. So that was a, a really good effort. It sort of, sort of shows the Pendleton spirit, you know, signing through, people coming together to help their neighbor, which was kind of gratifying. Absolutely. Well, Bridge, there were some kind of interesting novel um, things that Pendleton tried to get rid of the flu. And um, sheep dip comes to mind. Yeah. So I'm wondering if you could maybe describe that particular attempt and if there's anything else, um, tell us about that too. Yeah, there were um, actually attempts here, and I, I don't know, uh, how many people they vaccinated. There was a vaccine that was brought here, I believe in November, from Seattle. Somebody at the Mayo Clinic uh, had decided that this was a bacteria and that they would try to develop a vaccine based on the idea this was a, this, this was a uh, bacteria. It was not. It was a virus. So they put together some sort of serum and they brought it here and they tried to, they inoculated some people uh, that were suffering from flu with it with no great effect because, and, and it didn't work anywhere because this was a virus, not a bacteria. And they couldn't, they actually couldn't see the virus with the micro, with the, uh, the, the technology they had at the time. They could only, they only could see it, I think in the 1940s or 50s, mm. which is interesting. But so that was one. Um, in the paper, Vicks VapoRub um, kept advertising to say that if you use Vicks VapoRub, the virus could not reach your lungs, which was, I think, patently false, but they kept advertising anyway. <laughs> there was an underwear company that, that, in the paper, I remember, that said that if you wore their underwear, you would be less likely to catch the flu, which I think also didn't pan out real well. Um, but, then they, but they also did. They, they, they had the idea that um, disinfecting the streets would, may, may help uh, slow the rate of infection, so they did use sheep dip, I believe they spread it all over the streets um, in, in late December 1918 in the hopes that that would disinfect the town. There was also a lot of talk about wearing masks. Uh, in some, some cities, they, they required it. I think in early January, when this thing was at its, at its, at its height, there wasn't a mention in the paper that people would do well to wear masks, uh, and that, could, that might protect you out in the street. Um, but again, I don't know what kind of masks those were, and I don't know how effective they were. But there were there were attempts to do something about it, and and um, like stay do your Christmas shopping early, and you won't get the flu, things like that. So there there were attempts to sort of mitigate it, but um, the most successful ones were uh, clearly the quarantines and um, you know, the flying of the flags, and you know the the emergency hospital and attempts to you know get people really really good care early on. Yeah, so it sounds like there were a lot of, you know, similar strategies between the two uh, pandemics, the one we're experiencing now and that one. Yeah. And, um, uh, there, there's some things that were different and that are jumping out at me, like um, right now the health department isn't, is keeping identities of the flu victims um, pretty close to the vest in the, you know, in the quest for privacy. And it sounds like in, in those times, if you were having the flu, your name was in the paper and you had a flag flying in front of your house. You did. That was a big difference. And I suppose it's all bound up uh, today with HIPAA regulations, privacy laws. But there were no privacy laws in 1918. The, in fact, the house owner uh, was required by law to report any cases of flu. And they were to fly the flag of quarantine until 
the person inside the house, persons or persons inside the house, uh, were free of symptoms for, I believe, five days. And I don't know exactly how they uh, quantified that. I know we had a quarantine officer. I know we had one city physician. That was interesting. I thought there were more. I guess there were, there were, there were uh, other doctors in private practice, but one city physician. Somebody had to certify, though, that you were free of flu wow. before you were able to remove that flag. And there was a big ordinance. Um, if you go back to the uh, East Oregonian of November 22nd, 1918, there was a great big um, in bold print, this, a dangerous disease, and printed this very long uh, series of ordinances by the city council um, setting forth what, could, what you would have to do in the case of the flu. And um, that, was, that was primary among the stipulations was if you were the owner of a house, you were required to report anybody sick in there, you had to fly a blue flag or else you would be fined. And they also set forth again that there should be no public meetings, uh, businesses, insofar as possible, should stay closed. Certainly bowling alleys and all optional businesses like, like, like the theater should stay closed mm -hmm. for the time being. And um, again, just setting forth, laying down the law, what people would and wouldn't do. I don't know if that would work today. I don't know um, if people would take that very well today. I know they wouldn't take their, their names and addresses being put in the paper. Um, I can see why they did that uh, because I mean, you would want to know if your neighbor mm -hmm. had flu. I mean, you would want to see that flag. You wouldn't want to go in there. You'd stop the, stop the spread of it. Um, but this is a different day and age, and we have privacy concerns, and um, people get all upset, I'm sure, if their names were printed in the paper. I'm quite sure. Yes, me too. Um, well, let's talk about the flu finally ended, and I don't know if there was, like, some yeah, week or date you can point to. and I just wonder how long it affected this uh, community, they were skittish for a long time, or um, I, I know from my own research that I was reading articles, you know, later in the, in 20, or excuse me, 1919, um, where it appeared that life was, you know, really back to normal. There were sports and there was everything that had been lacking in the previous months during the pandemic, and it was kind of amazing to me. Um, what, did you read anything that uh, kind of told you about life, how it got back to normal, how long yeah, it took? Yeah, the, um, I believe the cases began to decline. The second, the second big clamp down of the town that started in late November when they closed the schools again and they and put really strict strictures on businesses, that seemed to do the trick. I think in January of 1918, early January, I think January 7th, the cases began to decline really rapidly and all the way through the month of January. Uh, people went back to school, I believe, around February 1st, and the last flu flags came down about that time. Okay. So that second clampdown seemed to really um, do the trick in terms of getting the infection rate down and, and um, getting people well. I should note that um, people in 1918 uh, faced the same restriction with school as they do now. Schools were closed uh, for a month in, uh, in October, November. They were briefly opened. And then, of course, they were shut down with the second big clampdown. But people still had to go to school. They had home uh, correspondence. Uh, correspondence uh, lessons were sent out to every student in, this, in the school district. And they were expected to do those uh, exercises and do that homework. And they would be collected by teachers when school uh, came back. And if there were sort of veiled warnings, if you didn't do it, then you were going to be in big trouble. And I do remember also that um, there was the school board was, or the, the school district complained that this shutdown was costing them $200 a day because they kept paying teachers. 
And I think in, in today's money, that would be like $3,000 a day. So it was, it was uh, putting a, a, a strain on the school district as well, as, as well as businesses and everybody else that was having to deal with this crisis. Got you. Um, so what do you think uh, are some lessons that we can learn, you know, we can draw from both the 1918 and the 2020 pandemics? I think, um, and people should look this up, there's, a, there's an article on, in the website Vox, if you look it up, um, Vox 1918 Spanish flu epidemic, um, there was a, a study done in 2007 by the University of Michigan School of Public Health, I think, and it was published in the Journal of, American, of the American Medical Association. And they studied like 43 cities in the United States and pretty much proved that the people who, the, the, the cities that put really, really strict regime in place of social distancing um, got over the flu a lot quicker mm -hmm. and got back to normal a lot quicker. And the cities they used in question, St. Louis uh, clamped down as we did very, very uh, quickly and effectively and had a relatively uh, slow growth of infections after they did that, a flattening of the curve, if you like, and uh, again, a, a much a quicker return to normal, whereas Philadelphia ignored uh, the strictures because they were uh, a big uh, center of liberty loan drives. They had a, in, 19, in September 1918, I think they had a parade of 100,000 people in the middle of this epidemic, um, in which it was a parade of 100,000 people waving flags and collecting money for a liberty loan. And that was after, after that, their, their infection rate spiked hugely. Oh my goodness. And uh, they, they were not careful about social distancing. And, and their um, infection rate was much higher, and they took much longer to come back to normal. <laughs> so it suggests that Pendleton did the right thing because we clamped down really early. And when it was clear that, you, that the clampdown was premature, we clamped down again. I mean, people were pretty ruthless about it. And I think that history will show, again, that people, that cities and people, authorities who um, go really quickly to a social distancing regime, they will recover quicker. And we always look to history. We, don't, we can't always look to history. History doesn't always tell us um, exactly uh, what the right thing to do is. But this, there's some pretty strong evidence that flattening the curve in this instance, will help a lot, and we and we know that from this from the study, the study of 1918, and the people who were strict, and the people who were, uh, let's keep the keep the uh, parade on for Liberty Loan, and, and people who acted like that. And I should you know you should point out that in 1918 again we were at war. Um, President Wilson never said anything official about the flu, even though people were being infected right and left because you couldn't shut down the factories, you could not stop the troop ships from going. Uh, our big offensive, which was supposed to win the war, the Mozargan offensive, was just getting underway in September. We could not stop to stop the war. I mean, it was, it was a matter of life and death. Uh, there was communism coming into Europe from, from the Soviet Union. There was famine, or from Russia, rather. There was famine. There was privation. There was no question we had to end, to end the war really, really, really quickly. So they, they didn't have any choice but to really to do that. I think it was a big mistake, but I could, you could understand their reasoning. But it is clear that the people who implemented social distancing very early on uh, were able to, to uh, really re seriously reduce the infection rate and take care of this flu uh, in the short term rather than the long term. So that's, that's one big lesson I think you can learn. All right. Um, uh, so the other day we were talking, and um, you brought up a really interesting thing that I hadn't heard about. And it was efforts to kind of isolate this, this influenza of 1918 and to sequence its genome. And I was just wondering if you would 
tell everybody about those efforts and kind of why they were doing it? Yeah, they, there was a, a huge effort early on to try to figure out what this was. They thought it was a bacteria. They didn't understand that it was a virus. And for, for years after uh, this, the flu sort of extinguished itself here and in the world after it killed 50 million or more people, uh, there was a, a Swedish graduate student named uh, Holzen, Johan Holzen, I believe. Uh, and he was at the University of Iowa. And he wanted, for his PhD thesis, to try to, to try to find this virus and figure out what was going on with it, or, or, or if you could see it under the microscope, and if you could sequence its genome. And apparently, he knew of a village in Alaska, Brevik, Alaska, which is like 90 miles by sled dog from Nome. And somehow the flu had gotten up there in 1918 and killed, I don't know, 70 out of 80 residents there. And he thought that if you could get a sample of a lung from somebody who had died of the flu there, because it, it affected the, the 1918 flu uh, affected the lungs more than anything else. People's lungs filled with fluid. There was this great in, uh, this inflammatory response that filled people's lungs with fluid, and you drowned in your own body fluids. So he actually went up there. He talked to um, the village leaders, and he said, we have a chance to maybe find out what caused this 1918 thing and maybe cure it or maybe, maybe put an end to it so we could never come back in some other form. And they let him actually dig into the permafrost where he figured bodies would be very well uh, uh, preserved and he could get a sample. And he actually did. He got some lung tissue from a woman there um, six or eight feet down in a mass grave. And he flew it back to the University of Iowa um, where he tried to look at it, tried to see if he had enough material to um, do something really significant in terms of finding out what kind of virus this was and, and what, you know, what to do about it. But he was unsuccessful. There was not enough material there. They, they didn't extract enough material to actually um, figure out what it was. And you fast forward, you can, actually there's a book uh, people can pick up. It's by uh, Gina Colada. I'm not a, a microbiologist, so I can't really explain all this. But Gina Colada, who um, used to be a New York Times science reporter, did a, a book on the, uh, in, I think, 2007 on the 1918 flu. I'm not sure exactly what it was called, but, but her name is Gina Colata, K-O-L-A-T-A. People want to look it up. And uh, in, in the early 2000s, the uh, Armed Forces Institute of Pathology also was in, looking into this problem to see if the tissue samples they took from some soldiers that had died would be enough to sequence the genome of this virus and then maybe be able to uh, come up with a vaccine. And uh, they, they were also not able to come up with enough, enough material to do that. And so Holton, when he was retired, actually returned to that same village to try again for more tissue samples, I, in the, again, in the early 2000s. And this time, uh, they found a perfectly pre uh, preserved body of an obese woman. Apparently, her obesity had, had uh, preserved her longer. And they got a whole lung of hers. And they were able then to see, both see the virus with improved microscope technology and um, improved uh, knowledge of viruses. And from there, they were able to sequence the genome, and they know exactly what kind of virus this was now. It's, it was a novel H1N1, a, kind of a bird flu, I think they, they, they classified it. And it certainly helped uh, with the making of flu vaccines from there. Um, we're better protected from something like an H1N1 novel virus now. Not, not entirely, but we're better off for the efforts of the Swedish guy and the people at the armed forces 
Institute of Pathology. A guy named Jeffrey Taubenberger, I think, was the lead investigator from them. So it was kind of a joint effort. Several people worked on getting this together, this effort to find out what this virus was and uh, sequence its genome. And what they still don't know, though, is why, well, first of all, they know why it was, it was especially virulent. It killed really almost exclusively 20 to 30-year-old people. They couldn't figure out, these people are healthy, why are they all dying? And one, was, one reason was that it was a very virulent form of flu, um, extremely virulent. And it actually mutated from the time it was in Kansas when it went overseas and came back. And that was when it was really it was killing people in a day. You'd come in at 11 o'clock to the hospital in the morning, you'd be dead by 6 o'clock. It was really scary. But one, I mean, so it was a very virulent virus. And secondly, they theorized that there was a variant of this flu operating even before the big one came in 1918, 1917, 1918, and that people above the age of 30 had some antibodies to it, hence had some immunity, because they didn't die in nearly the numbers of, as the people 20 to 30 did. And um, so that was rather interesting. They know, they know why it killed more people now, but they still don't know where it came from. They are, again, there's the Chinese theory that came from Chinese laborers coming to the Western Front uh, to dig graves and trenches, the theory that it originated in, in, in Britain or in a British military camp in, uh, in France, and then there was the Camp Funston argument that it, somehow people were sickened by this big manure cloud. But Jeffrey Taubenberger, I know, thinks uh, that it's ridiculous that it came from the, from the manure cloud. He can't explain why it broke out in Kansas, but he said it's ridiculous to think it came from a manure cloud. So that's still a very big mystery as to where it, where it came from. And I, I don't know that we know with COVID. I think they, 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 they believe it was traced to a, um, a bats being sold in a, in a market somewhere in, in Wuhan, China. But I don't know if they, if they know that for sure. All right, well, fascinating stuff. I think we, we can probably end this by, I think I'll just have you um, talk about anything that you want to. Um, I know that you were thinking about talking about some improvements that we can make as a state or a country as a result of this um, pandemic that we're going through right now, but just whatever, you, however you want to end this, feel free. Um, I think it's useful to think about the fact that after every major disaster, and this is going to be a major disaster, I don't think there's any question nationwide, but if you think about um, the, well, the 1918 flu, I've read, um, prompted some nations, and I don't know which ones, I haven't investigated this, but prompted some nations to uh, establish a national health service to better deal with pandemics in the future. I know Britain established a Ministry of Health, which eventually, after the Second World War, led to the National Health Service, which is the nationwide uh, health service that every, every British person can use at any time. Their tax money goes to support it, and anyone can get treatment for anything at any time, basically, with, with some exceptions. Um, but after World War II, or after the Depression, remember, uh, or during the Depression, that was a, a huge national calamity. Um, that exposed um, gaps or weaknesses in our social safety net, actually exposed the fact that we had no social safety net. So that led to the creation of unemployment insurance and social security, which uh, has helped to cushion people against economic downturns and actually has been, well, the Social Security has been the most effective anti-poverty program ever in the country. That came out of a big calamity. Um, World War II was a huge calamity. Uh, in Britain, um, that produced the National Health Service mm -hmm. that aimed to make the whole nation healthier because it was, it was perceived that troops had not been their healthiest when they went in the service and we have to do something about this, make life better after the war. So that produced the National Health Service there. In the United States, it produced the GI Bill, 
All these guys are coming home and they made a huge sacrifice for the country. What can we do to help them? What can we do to make our country stronger? So it decided to either uh, give them money to start a small business or to uh, build a house, or it gave them money to go to college. So, and, and like my father went to college in the GI Bill. He never would have otherwise. And, and hundreds of thousands of people, millions nationwide went to college. And that helped fuel the greatest economic expansion in American history over the next 30 years. So I think, you know, um, somebody said at some point, and I forget who it was, uh, you should never let a good crisis uh, go untaken advantage of, if I can say something really clumsily. Um, and this one, I mean, there's several, people have mentioned a lot of things that could be done um, after this one. One thing um, I hope that we do is have a national conversation about providing, somehow providing everybody in the country with basic health coverage, because there have been all kinds of cases where, in this epidemic, people have been tested or have agreed to be tested only to be hit with terrible medical bills after having done the socially responsible thing and been tested. There's a guy in New York, a Bennington College professor, no, actually he had been in New York, but he was a Bennington College professor, he'd been in New York for a while, he came home and he got COVID symptoms and he called his doctor, what should we do? So his doctor called him in and they did flu tests on him, the flu tests were negative, and he still had the symptoms after a while and so the doctor told him he should go to the ER and just, get, just have the swab test and, and make sure. So he did. Uh, and he thought his insurance would cover it, but, um, and the test was free. I think President Trump signed a, in part of the coronavirus stimulus bill, um, testing is supposed to be free, and the test itself was free, but um, he found that the use of the emergency room um, cost him something. The doctor who, or the personnel who did the test on him were not affiliated with the hospital. They were not in his network, so that ended up costing him like $1,000 out of pocket. And uh, the, the test itself, the lab, um, charged some exorbitant fee for the test. So he got stuck with a bill after the insurance helped pay for some of it with of like $2,000. And his stimulus check is only going to be $1,200. Um, and it, it occurs to me that it's really um, crucial in a time of pan pandemic for everybody to feel confident they can go get tested so they won't infect other people. But I'm afraid that uh, since people have lost their jobs, they might have lost their health insurance or not have any in the first place. And maybe they're holding out on being tested and going to work sick and infect, infecting more and more and more people with this very dangerous disease. So I, I, I hope that we could have a national conversation at least. I don't know what, what shape that would take. As echelons above my pay grade and I wouldn't you know, presume to prescribe solutions. But maybe we could have a national conversation about that, about somehow getting people basic coverage so that when the, when the next pandemic comes, not if but when, we'll be better prepared for it. I'm thinking also that uh, a lot of schools were unable to continue with instruction during this time because not everybody in the country has internet access. I would love for there to be a conversation about that, maybe internet access for everybody. Um, maybe uh, a, you know, a strengthened social uh, safety net again, um, better unemployment insurance, better sick leave. I don't know, there's all kinds of possibilities for positive change and I hope the President and the Congress, when this is over, will um, take up some of these issues and make sure, I think it was Mario Cuomo after 9-11 said, the trick in life is to, is to make something good out of every bad event or terrible event in the country. And I hope that we can extract whatever good is possible to extract from this tragedy uh, going forward. We don't want it to be a permanent, I mean, it will be a scar in the country, but we want it to be a scar that will be somewhat healed uh, by the actions that we take after all this is over.
Right, well said, Bridget. Thank you so much for joining us today on In the Newsroom. And um, I, if in, anybody wants to read uh, Bridget Farley's column that she wrote on the flu epidemic pandemic of, of 1918, you can get on eastoregonian.com and just search 1918, I think. And um, you can also read the story that I wrote. They think they appeared the same They did, day. same day. The eight, March 18th, I think, yeah. or maybe 19th. But you can find it. Yeah, mid-March. Right. So anyway, thank you so much. And please come back and join us for another, another podcast in the newsroom in the future. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me.